Hello, welcome to Beyond the Filter. I am your host, Liz Ryerson, and I'm here with uh, artist, programmer, game designer, uh, designer of weird interactive art software, Andy McClure. Hi, Andy. Hello. So yeah, uh, we've known each other for a while. You used to live in the Bay Area, correct? Yeah. Um, for about uh, ten years until uh, end of last year. So. Yeah, and I think I met you at the first GDC that I went to. Yeah, that, I, I don't even I don't even remember how far long ago it was. I just remember like the, this whole the whole group of uh, games people I knew in the Bay Area. You were one of the earlier people I met, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because there was a huge um, group of people, and someone's like, "Oh, I think I saw that person who made Jumpman." <laughs> so let's let's talk about Jumpman, actually, sure. since that was one of your first projects. Yeah. Um, so what is what is what is Jumpman? Okay, uh, Jumpman was uh, Jumpman was the first video game I ever I ever finished. I'm, I'm using that wording carefully because if I say ever finished, then that means that uh, none of the hypercard projects I made when I was ten have to count. Um, but it was it was kind of interesting because I was I'd played like a couple of indie games at that point. Like this was this is when indie games meant like TIG Source, and there were like four of them, and uh, I hadn't. I had no connection with that community. I, 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 I didn't have any connection until I released Jumpman. I had just uh, sat down and started making a game. I'd, um, I'd, I'd, I'd had like these two things that had happened to me. I'd, I'd, I'd made um, before I made games. Uh, I made mostly like music software and stuff. Um, I spent like a long time like making music. None of that is I think really even on the internet anymore. I keep meaning to put some of it on SoundCloud, but. Um, I, ma I made little bits of music production software, and then I'd make music with it. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, I started making um, a, a kind of like a, a sort of a drum machine that used a uh, a Wii remote as a as the as the uh, the input device, um, and it was going pretty well. I was like, you know, maybe I should just make a video game with this. So I started making a video game with the intent of uh, hooking it up to the Wii on the PC, and then maybe trying to put it on the Wii. Uh, but then I never actually got around to doing the Wii Remote integration, so I just wound up making a video game. So I spent like a, a full year, like just all of my spare time on Jumpman. It's still the, it's still my largest project. Um, and then when I released it, that was kind of when I, you know, when I was trying to promote it, I, I made contact with Tig Source and I, I got on their front page, which to me that was like, that was making it at the time, getting yeah. on the Tig Source front page. No one well, even, a, it was a small, much smaller community. It was a much point. smaller community. I don't know if anyone even remembers what Tig Source is now, but um, that was what kind of got me into the community and um, and stuff. And uh, Jumpman was um, it was sort of a, I was sort of trying to make something that like evoked like really really early video games, like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred slash Apple Two era. There's actually multiple other games named Jumpman. There's a one like yeah. when I Google Jumpman, there's a game called Jumpman Lives, um, from yeah, 1983. So was, and there, I think part, there are other ones too. Yeah. So part of the joke there was that um, I named it Jumpman just because it was like okay, something like really sort of like evoking those super early video games. And it's like, well, Jumpman. There were like multiple games named Jumpman. Mario's original name was Jumpman, and I think I kind of made a mistake uh, because I thought there were multiple unrelated games named Jumpman. But there's really the only Jumpman there have been were uh, Mario when he was in Donkey Kong, and uh, and 
The Jumpman, which was a, a game that was made in the early 80s and had several sequels and remakes that were um, all in one series. Something about, like, disarming bombs. I've never even played that game. Yeah, I, um, I've never either. So I, I think I kind of made a mistake using that name because I thought it would be like, well, Mario was Jumpman, and then there were several other Jumpman, but, like, it was mostly just people associate Jumpman with, like, the one with the bombs. Um, and... Uh, people had a lot of attachment to that game from the early 80s. So I had, I had to do a lot of explaining, like, no, not that Jumpman, the other Jumpman. <laughs> um, and it was like two days after I released, it was like, hey, I could have named it Player One and kind of gotten the same, you know, kind of the same feel of like something like just sort of like very, you know, generic video game in its purest form, sort of. Yeah, uh, I think it's funny. Um, well, I just Googled it now to find your website and I actually had to type in your name to actually find the right correct game <laughs> even though this game was pretty popular at the time yeah it was it was one of those i think i when i got started like indie games was sort of this thing where there was like it felt like there was like a canon right like yeah something would come out and everyone would remember it for years and years and years and that's uh, not and that, true at all now that's not true at all anymore people, so like people it's, forget a lot of those indie games that came out around that time like yeah. we're, we're talking about uh between probably about 2007 and 2011 2011 yeah, around maybe then. At, around then like the first few years i was involved in indie games like you know it's like in, in any game community it's sort of like people are sort of just known by what they made sort of so like you you someone introduces themselves and they give their name and you're like, oh, hello, and you have no idea who that person is, and you're, you're kind of holding back the uh, the question, so what do you do, <laughs> which is code for, tell me the name of the project of yours that I might have actually heard of. Um, but yeah, for the first two or three years, for the first two years I was in involved in any games, like I was just sort of the person who made Jumpman, and I'd, I'd run into people and they'd have heard of it, and now no one has heard of it almost, like very occasionally I'll run into someone who remembers this game. Um, I'm much more likely to have run into someone who's played great artist at this point. Yeah, well, I'm still I, really, I'm still really proud of that original game, and I, I'm kind of, um, I don't know, it was, it was the only, it was one of only like two things I've ever sold, but I sold it on the iPhone, and I remember I know, it's kind of funny. Like I, at one point, this was such a huge thing, and now it's like no one's heard of it, and the iPhone version you can't get it anymore because they stopped paying Apple their yearly ransom, and it's just <laughs> sort of like gone now. The whole thing's disappeared. I remember you saying that the the iPhone port was kind of a disaster and it took forever to do. I don't know if it was a disaster or not. It was. It, it didn't turn out the way I'd hoped it. It, it didn't make. Um, it made. It it actually did sell some, um, but not a lot compared to. You know, if you if you take into account, it was. I spent an entire year on Jumpman and then an entire year porting it to the iPhone. And I put a lot of work into the iPhone port. It was like a, it was an almost total rewrite. Um, and I had like I had like a full level editor with like touch controls and all that, um, and like this online, like this built-in online thing where you could like upload and download the levels other people had made. And I, I did I, I did all that from scratch. This was like before there was really like good infrastructure for all that. This was actually very early um, in, you know, the kind of the game's life cycle of the iPhone, like before free to play or anything. Um, mm -hmm. But it was it didn't like I, th I think I. I'd made the first Jumpman, and that actually blew up. It went, like, viral, and, like, the, the video got everywhere, and we wound up on um, Andrew Sullivan's blog for some reason. That, Andrew Sullivan? Oh, God, he's, he's, like, he's, like, this, like, 
like political pundit. He got oh, like weird. He got like really huge for like being like the gay conservative, and he writes all of these pieces where he's talking about how interesting and exceptional he is because I'm gay, but I'm also conservative. <laughs> and he he's I don't know he's he thinks his own his own story is very interesting. Um, but he wound up uh, he wound up linking my game, and I'm like, oh well, that's kind of random. But um, so I, I think I thought like all I had to do is just sort of make something super cool for the iPhone and the same thing would happen and it, it didn't happen. And like like there were I'm I'm kind of happy with how it turned out, but it was also sort of um, it was sort of like it was gesture based sort of like it's sort of difficult to make control schemes for the iPhone, which is I think why eventually the iPhone kind of settled on like most of the kind of arcadey games are sort of like like almost like one touch, right? Like mm-hmm. everything's Cannibal Clones. Um, they made a Sonic game. It was a Cannibal Clone. Can- Cannibal's the the game where you're running. Uh, there's an yeah. impend- impending apocalypse, and you're running, and it's just you, you run and jump, and that's the only thing you can do, and you're just trying yeah, to prolong it's just the, only the thing, apocalypse. The, the entire but screen is one button, and I feel like when you first when the iPhone first came out, people were trying to do all kinds of really complicated things with gestures. And then they eventually just realized that gestures are, are very, very, very hard to get right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, it's more like everything's either sort of like games where you're just pressing buttons all the time, I, I feel like, or it's just sort of, well, the whole screen is, is one button. It's Flappy Bird. It's that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I was trying to do, I was trying, I had actually made a platformer, and it was not a platform with the world's tightest controls. Like, it, it really, I, it was not, it would have made a, if, it could have been a much better game if I designed it for the iPhone and its screen, um, rather than trying to, you know, port an existing game I'd made. Like there was there was a game relatively early on called um, uh, Moss Speedrun, M O S Speedrun. I've never heard it. I've never heard of that. Yeah, this was this was it was a big deal in the early days of indie games on mobile devices, and now I don't I, I don't know if anyone remembers it now, but um, it was also at, at least the old PC indie games people can still somewhat play, yeah. whereas the the iPhone ones, it's like iPhone games are just dead after a year or two, and there's no incentive to keep them working, right? There's it's just if you if you update your game, you're putting a lot of effort into, you know, keeping up with this treadmill of the of the rapidly changing platform, and and it's. Uh, and you don't get really any revenue off the old games. Yeah, right? I actually was watching an interview with Jonathan Blow recently where he was saying mm-hmm. that he built his own engine for the witness partly just because they uh if you if they used Unity or Unreal which are you know two of the ma- the big 3D engines that he would it, it be forced to update it all the time in order to um be compatible with the new versions and then because they change their software and they change how they're doing things, um, things that are designed to be a very, very particular way in the game uh, could now not work the same way anymore because it's just not possible because it was designed with the other previous thing in mind. It's just it, it's just really kind of tragic how... Um, I mean, people complain about Flash, but one thing that uh, when I talked to Natalie... Lawhead, who do, did Tetragedon games for this um, podcast, like she was saying that um, you know f- they they've done a lot to make Flash backwards compatible and to try and not break old Flash games and that kind of stuff. Whereas like like Unity or or an eight eight or e- like HTML or something like that, they they don't 
necessarily put the effort into trying to be backwards compatible. It's all just about, well, you have to fix your thing and you change your thing. And if you if you don't if you don't do it, then t too bad for you. And it's even worse with Apple and obviously iPhone because they have a lock over everything. You know. Yeah. Distribution. I think uh, I think I mean Flash was Flash was obviously just one of the best things to happen to games you know ever, and it's it's just incredibly tragic. It's been killed, but. Um, I, I think, mean, it's I think technically what, still around. Technically, I think what Blow was describing is like it's a point, but I don't know if he's got the right solution because. So there's if you're using like someone else's engine, like Unity or something, you've got to deal with the the engine itself changing over time, and I I've got no background with Unity whatsoever. Um, and I do a lot of people do mention that like oh you go from like one version of Unity to the next and stuff breaks, you have to update your project that sort of thing. But it's also the case that. Um, if you're using one of those engines, the platforms themselves change over time. All the platforms are changing over time. Um, PC was, there was kind of like a period of like a good 10, 15, 20 years or something where both Windows and Mac were sort of stable as platforms. So if you just targeted like desktop, you'd at least be able to, you know, you could expect that your game would keep working for a long time. But that's not really true anymore. Like Macintosh, like stuff, Mac games that are not even that old have been breaking with new OS 10 updates at an alarming rate. Um, Windows is a little better just because, I don't know, a lot of even not very old games uh, that I run on Windows 10 don't work. Um, but Windows yeah. 10 has this like whole set of backward compatibility modes. Yeah, well, Windows... So if you, if you open up the backward compatibility mode... If you open up like the compatibility mode dialog and just like keep pressing buttons, it'll usually eventually launch. But it's not like it was like five years ago where you could you know play you know download something that was eleven years old and just assume it would work. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> Windows is kind of notorious, especially during that like uh, Windows ninety five to two thousand to to like era of like yeah. a lot of those games uh, have problems and have compatibility issues. The one thing though is a lot of the games that are popular enough they've had they've gotten fixes or there's like yeah. good old games or something like that where they'll they'll have like fixes and people yeah. hack it. So I mean it, it's it's wonderful that the user base will like will do that. Um but when we're talking about I mean one of the, the huge issues that I have with um we're talking about like that early era of indie games is uh, at the time there was like this canon and it was kind of like a community and it was like to some extent more based on merit or at least there there was like I won't say based on merit but there was like maybe more of an openness to whatever anybody was going to make because anybody doing it like in any kind of ambitious project you know was kind of a big deal um, even if it was weird, you know, cause there's like stuff like La La Land that, you know, was, yeah. was pretty well known, even though it's super weird. Um, well, it was, I think it was just a lot. I think the fact the community was smaller, um, made it just a lot more manageable. Like I remember at the time, like back then I played almost everything that came out. Like I could honestly say I'd played like pretty much like like all the indie games, because there were enough indie games that you could just play them all, kind of. Um, but these days, there's just so much stuff. There's just enormous amounts of stuff, and it's just sort of, you have to kind of pick and choose what you play. And when you pick and choose what you play, maybe you're not really making the best decisions about what to pick and choose, or you're picking things based on prejudices, or you know this person, or, or whatever. Yeah, oftentimes I pick based on appearance, and that's not always the best option, because... Um... 
sometimes I've seen a lot of things that m might be aesthetically pleasing, but not have much else to them or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And, you know, but I, I guess the, the thing that I find really weird is when I got into, uh, in indie game stuff, TIG source, um, which was ar around 2010 or 2011, sort of the, towards the end of that era, um, I I was hearing about all these games and I was like, oh, okay, the, this is what this is. And then all of a sudden, like things like Indie Game the Movie happened and uh, most people forget about those games that were made during that era and some of them don't even work anymore. And like, I don't know, I, I just find it very strange. And part of me, like, I don't see like YouTubers really even playing them. Like you, there's so many like YouTube let's players who will play so many weird things, but I don't see them really playing games from that era indie. I don't really see people talking. It's not old enough for people to have nostalgia for them, basically, <coughs> and um, not new enough for it to be current. You know, and that's maybe if we uh, maybe if we wait another five years, we'll have people streaming all these great games they played in their childhood or something. Yeah, I mean, I and had we'll be of, have have people dragging out La La Land or something. Yeah, I mean, I had thought of like doing some videos or at least trying to, you know, play through some of those old games just to see. Just because it's like, it's weird that there's this community in there. Are, I I I just feel like even if some of that stuff, a lot of those communities are really toxic. Like I I see it. Uh, you know, like the the whole forum culture, like it's very, they're very, um, a lot of people are mean and nasty on those forums and troll each other. And there's like a lot of like, just like toxicity and a lot of people trying to one up each other and, you know, be right about everything. And like that, I mean that, and that's like, I realize looking back, like sometimes I look at older forums or that might be still around and I see that and I realize like, okay, I don't miss that at all from that era. But on the other hand, like, I don't know, I just have this really weird feeling about TIG Source that there were some members of that community that basically cashed out and are indie game celebrities now. And then there are a bunch of other people who just kind of are there and still making games, but suddenly one group is seen as much more important than the other one because they made a lot of money and it it just seems very weird to me that so much um so much e emphasis is put on money like above well, any so I think, anything else i think else. in this case money is a proxy for reach right like the the people who were on tig source and now are like millionaires or something they don't they're not noteworthy, like, they didn't become noteworthy because they were big on TIG Source. They became noteworthy because they got on Steam or because their thing just sort of went viral. Like, nobody remembers now that Minecraft started as a TIG Source thread. Yeah. Um, that started, I, I think in the, like, the first post he was talking about, yeah, it's an Infiniminer. <laughs> like, it was it was originally just this this TIG Source th thread, and everyone understood at the time that it was a clone of Infiniminer with some additional features. Um, I, don't, I don't remember if he was upfront about that or not, but, um, you know, nobody... Nobody thinks of, I, th I think most people have heard of, like, say, Super Meat Boy. They don't think of it as, like, having come out of this milieu, however you pronounce that. They, they're like, oh, that's that game that was on Steam. Like, everyone, most of the people who cashed out, they cashed out through Steam. Um, yeah. And so it's, you know, they, ca they, they made a lot of money because people actually heard of them. And, and, you know, the people have heard of them now, you know, for that same reason, just the games were relatively famous. There was, there was just, there was a lot of reach that came out of, 
you know, being on Steam in that era that just didn't come out of, you know, having been a big deal in these little kind of artsy circles that, that, you know, we met each other in. Yeah. I, I just, I find it interesting, partly looking at Jumpman, um, Jumpman in a lot of ways, like, kind of embodies a lot of the tropes of, like, uh, sort of puzzle platformer game yeah and like it's it's very a product of 2008 and yet like in other ways i feel like if you look at contemporary puzzle platformers and stuff there is there are things in that game that are very strange in comparison like the the sort of uh infinitely wrapping world or the fact that you're like the tone is like of Jumpman is a little more weird and less serious, like the fact that you can turn the level and cause chaos with the with the the big balls that bounce around. Um, there's there's almost there's something like a little more play like like it's almost like a toy or something that you're playing with, um, rather th- and, and and I feel like that that's what's different to me about that and maybe some of the other er- games of that era is that there is more of like um, a sensibility of, I don't know, maybe just experimentation. Like you could see the author um, sensibility, the author's sensibility, even when they were doing maybe in some ways very traditional games um, come out from that. And I feel like in this day and age, you often don't see that anymore because there's so much emphasis put on polishing things. and Right. Themselves. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Jetman's... It's sort of trying to evoke this sort of early 1980s feel, um, but it's also got like all these kind of like weird elements to the visuals. It was, it, I think it's still got a relatively unique kind of visual feel to it. I don't, I, I can't really come up with a lot of games that are good comparisons. Um, and I was, I was trying to do something that was just sort of detached from time because like, well, it's based on something 20 years old. It'll probably be about as new feeling in 10 years as it is now. Um, it's actually almost ten years old. I made it in I, I made it in two thousand eight. I released it in early two thousand nine. But it was also the kind of the fact that at the time that I made this, like most of anyone who called themselves indie, most of them were making platformers, usually with sort of puzzle elements, which I've got, and usually with sort of this punishment feel, which I've got. Yeah. And um, so in those in those senses, it's sort of like Super Meat Boy. It's is like that, but yeah. definitely embodies that in a lot of ways. Yeah, but it's also I don't know. There were there were a lot of weird things about it. I was not the reason everyone was making platformers back then was that everyone was using Game Maker, and if they weren't using Game Maker, they were using Flash. And there were a lot of sort of you know there were a couple of different platforming engines for Flash back then. Yeah, so Game um, Game Maker um, was the big pro was Game Maker uh, was the the big game making program, which is still around, but not it was super widely used at the time. I think because. Yeah. The free version was like fully functional or something at the time, right? I think there's just something really special about Game Maker. There's been a lot of programs like it, and people just seem to connect to it. And it's still, I mean, it's still, it's actually, it kind of went away for a while, but then it started getting some more active development. You can put Game Maker stuff on PS4 now. Oh, like okay. Nuclear, Nuclear Throne is made with it. Um, I think is Hyperlight Drifter made with it. Hyperlight Drifter might be made. Yeah, with it. I think I think you're right. Yeah, I I actually bought Game Maker because they had a sale. Like I think it was like a yeah. whole bundle thing, and I've been. An Undertale was it. actually was actually a Game Maker game, which is not extremely obvious from playing it. Um, but I think Undertale's been customized a bunch. But but back in like 2007, like Game Maker was sort of 
everything made with it kind of had a little bit of similarity to it. Um, both because the game, it, I think it was maybe a bit less flexible back then, but it sort of, it wanted to be used to make a platform and a particular kind of platformer. Yeah. And there were like a set of scripts that were going around. So like one person would design like a script for like a, you know, oh, add a gun to your game maker game. And that script would get used in like a dozen games or something. Um, whereas Jumpman was sort of, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally a programmer. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not super, I don't really have training in conventional visual art. And I, I did all the stuff on Jumpman from scratch. And I think some of what makes Jumpman, if it feels a little bit unusual or surprising, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it just doesn't, it, it doesn't really, I used a, a, I used a physics engine, um, but it doesn't really share a lot in common. So there might be some kind of like weird things I do, like, like the way that I use space or the way that I, you know, move the camera that just sort of feels a little odd just because there were a lot of platformers being made in that era, but none were really quite doing what I did because so much of what I was doing was just from scratch. Yeah. iJumpMan was, it was kind of funny, the, the iPhone version, I, I was actually really, really proud of what I came up with in terms of the gestures. I thought it'd come up with like a really, really cool way of, you know, translating platformer mechanics to touch controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very few people got it. It was very hard for me. I, had a, I struggled to communicate it to people. And I realized something I realized after I'd I'd made it was that I'd been sort of um, like the whole year I was working on it I was constantly playtesting it, and everyone who playtested it sort of got it. But then when I released it, people were trying to play it and they just couldn't figure it out. And I realized that everyone who had playtested it around me had seen me play it first. Yeah, like they'd gotten a little demo from me. And if you'd seen someone play it, you could kind of you kind of got the the sense of oh here's how I here's how I use these gestures, but I, I never really succeeded in communicating within the game how the gesture system works. So mm-hmm. it was sort of like a, a not a, some people downloaded it, but I don't think they really got what to do with it or how to play it. And so that was kind of that was a bit of a discouraging a discouraging thing for me. And that was the that was sort of other than like a little drum machine program made. That was the last time I tried to sell a game because it was sort of like well I put so much effort into making it sellable you know, above and beyond, like, you know, the level of polish for, like, a just something I throw up on a website. Um, and I didn't really get, I didn't really get, like, what I felt like was a return. I'm like, well, I should just be, if I'm doing this to have fun, I'm not going to make money. I should just concentrate on the stuff that I think, you know, I, I have fun making. So, um, so after that, I remember you, you saying you were working on this project for, like, a year that ended up going nowhere, and it was, Yeah. Like... I, I started off, like, I started off, making big, you know, big projects that I would start on and work on it for until it was done and then finish it. That was, you know, Jumpman for one year, and then I Jumpman took another whole year, the iPhone version. Uh, and then I worked on something that I called Angels, and Angels was sort of my one that got away project. I spent a whole year on it. It was, I'm still really proud of it, um, but it was, it was kind of more impressive technically than it was in practice. Like, it was, what it was, was it was, um, it was a Pac-Man clone. But it was a Pac-Man clone set on something called the hyperbolic plane, so it was in non-Euclidean space, and uh, meaning it's it's like mathematically like it was projected on the inside of an infinitely large sphere. So it was like um, when you were playing it, like everything would sort of like warp and bend around you, and like angles didn't work the same way they did in the real world, and um, it was it was like a really fun project to work on. 
because I was having to learn all this weird math just to do anything at all. It actually turned out a little bit like I Jump Man in terms of like it was very nobody really understood how you were supposed to play it, and I wasn't really convinced that playing it was fun. Um, and because it was all this very complicated math, the code was kind of hard to modify. Mm-hmm. So like, like I didn't start with like a prototype and then I developed into a full game. I started with, well, I'm going to sit down and write this engine that can handle hyperbolic space. Um, but by the time it was done, the, the gameplay was kind of very tightly welded into this, uh, this engine I'd written. And it would have been hard for me to like, you know, try out different kinds of gameplay or, or port it to use a different kind of gameplay. And I eventually sort of got discouraged and stopped that. So that and the iPhone project that didn't sell very well and the large, weird, hyperbolic project um, that I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do with it, that sort of like burned me out on making like large, monolithic, you know, professional-looking things. And I started kind of making more, you know, small jam games, trash games, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well- um, the other thing that happened was that after I'd been on Angels for about a year and was kind of starting to lose faith in it, um, I actually took a job. Uh, it, was, it was actually kind of funny. The iPhone game didn't didn't go anywhere, but I learned iPhone programming, and so then I got a job writing iPhone software. But the company I got the job with, part of my terms of employment was that I wasn't allowed to work on any other iPhone software. Yeah, I remember and Angels you saying was, that. Yeah, Angels was an iPhone game, so I had to. It wasn't finished, and I just kind of had to stop working on it permanently. Um, and then I just never went back to it. That one. That one never got released. Um, I might. I've been thinking about trying to to bring it back and maybe like I don't know I might I'm I'm starting to sort of these days like very recently starting to sort of work with like web stuff and I might try to somehow get um what I have finished of angels like onto a website or something mm-hmm. um but I don't know I think it's interesting though you're talking about the extremely complicated math because I I feel like that goes into um some of your your other projects that you did afterwards yeah um, that were more sort of tools and and like i think the interesting thing about like Jumpman and um and that is i feel like i see some of your your aesthetic or whatever which is like i feel like is one you play a lot with player people's expectations like there's a lot of stuff that's just like a joke in things (laughs) that you do and um right i'm thinking of like uh, that that jam game you made called the Shadowland Prophecy that's just, <laughs> that's just a title screen. I'm really proud of that one. <laughs> um, and um, the other is like this like complicated math or like the- theoretical stuff that that is put in this very sort of abstract shell. And um, I feel like it makes sense to me that you kind of have done more tools and tools, quote unquote. And stuff like that afterwards. Um, yeah. Just because uh, that feels like a, I don't know. Do, do you want to talk about a uh, great artist and Icosa and maybe some of that that other stuff? Yeah. That... Let me let me start with the that kind of first thing you said because you covered a couple different things. I'm I'm really interested in systems. I'm really interested in like, like sort of mathematical systems or computational systems and like how they interact with themselves. And uh, almost everything I've done has been about that. Like, I'll, I'll usually, a lot of my games and a lot of my sort of not quite games things will be sort of, I just sat down and I implemented some sort of a system in code that had interesting interactions. And then I'm just trying to walk people through exploring that system. The system's what's interesting, not, not really so much whatever I, I made a lot of the time. 
Um, and Jumpman is, is a lot like that. It's, it's got, it's, Jumpman specifically is, um, even, you know, even the first thing I made is, is, it's all about sort of, it has these sort of components and then they all interact with each other. There's not really, um, you know, there's a lot of different stuff happening at different levels, but they're all sort of like the results of the interactions between these basic things that I, 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 I programmed in. It's basically like a physics toy with certain rules. Um, and all the situations kind of come out of how those rules interact with each other. Yeah, it's and, and it's funny because Jumpman is a lot more conventional than stuff that you did afterwards. Yeah. but it still has that feeling in a lot of ways. And when I the next sort of I think when I started off, I, I had this idea that um, you know games are made of systems, and in in a game, the way you interact with with the systems in the game are you know mechanics. So I, I think I started off thinking that like the way that um, if I was interested in systems or if I was interested in these things, and I, I like the two things I made immediately after Jumpman were um, were Angels, the game that I never finished with all the hyperbolic stuff, and a game called The Snap, uh, which was like an arena shooter with like working time travel. I'm still really, really proud of of the code side of that one game. What, what do you What do you mean by that? I mean like you could it was a two player shooter, and you could like go into the past and shoot someone in the past, and it would hurt them now. Or you could do things like if someone picked up like a health pack, you could jump into the past and get the health pack before them, and it would like, it would like unheal them in the present. Like it would undo the fact that the game took, kept track of every single thing that had happened in the entire course of the game, and which events depended on which other events. And so if you undid an event, it would undo all of its consequences into the future. You could like heal someone by going into the past and blocking block blocking bullets that would have hurt them. That's really interesting. Um, I feel like it was, I feel it was, like that's an idea that like might come out into you know a year or two. Someone might make that game. Yeah. Well, it was, the game worked. The problem is it wasn't fun. So it was. I think early on I had this idea that the only way that I could, um, you know, let someone explore a system was to kind of like create a game that, like a conventional video game with like goals and a plot and you know things like that. And then sort of weave whatever the system was into the game as, you know, quote, mechanics, unquote. And this led to some games that, like, have some of still the, the, the most impressive, you know, code-wise games I've written. You know, these really early things I made um, referring to Angels and the Snap. But they weren't fun games at all, at all really. And um, I, I couldn't quite get the systems to make sense as game mechanics. Um, the, the, like, the, the time travel in the Snap... Um, when you were playing the game, you didn't really experience it as like, oh my god, I'm changing time, which was what I'd hoped. You experience it as like, well, there's like a lot of stuff happening on screen. Because you'd have like all of your bullets and all of your past bullets, and then they'd all just be sort of like flying around. And you just experience it as sort of like bullet hell, but there didn't seem to be anything really deeper going on. Um, and I was, sort of, I was sort of struggling with how to take like these weird complicated systems, like this time travel engine I'd written, um, and turn it into something that that worked in, in a video game and, you know, supported a video game and did all these ludic things. And the way I eventually got out of that was I just sort of started being less of a video game. Like, instead of going like, well, it, it has, I, I was kind of wedded to a lot of, like, the conventional ideas of video games. And that worked really well in Jumpman because the systems in that were just physics. And physics, you know, translate well into a game. But something kind of more abstract, like non-Euclidean space or time travel or something, or at least those things are abstract the way I implemented them. Um, it didn't work so well. So I, I started making these things that were just sort of more like toys. Um, so I'd, I'd make these complicated mechanisms or these complicated systems, and then I'd just let people play with them. I think the... Uh, oh, by the way, I should probably mention, if you want to download any of my stuff, um, go to runhello.com. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's where I've got all of my games. 
you can, um, and you can start... play the game that I well, I guess I technically made two games with you. Yeah, um, I've got I've got two games on there that I made with Liz, or there, there was what there were a couple of games that um, there's something there's a there's a, a game which was this very very silly kind of almost parody of a first person shooter called Seven uh, DRL, which is short for Seven Day Roguelike. Uh, there was a, a seven there was a, a competition called Seven D, D, DRL for Seven Day Roguelike, and um, then the next month there was something called Seven D FPS for Seven Day FPS. So I made a first-person shooter roguelike for the second one and named it 7DRL. Uh, but uh, Liz made the music for that, um, and that was, I think, the first time we worked together. And then we yeah. later made uh, we made a full game for Ludum Dare called uh, Responsibilities. And then another time she contributed music to sort of um, one of the, the toys that I mentioned. It was called um, Howler. Oh, right, right, okay. Yeah, so that's, that's on my website. And then I've also got a second website that I've started posting my kind of like web experiments on. Which is a dryad dot technology like the tree, okay. but um, anyway, the the point is that I I kind of stopped making video games and started like Howler, which is I think the the second thing that I mentioned that Liz made music for. Um, it was it was there was mo- not much to it. It was just like some objects in a physics space, and when you clicked, they'd sort of like gravitate toward where you clicked, and then there were like just some sliders, and the sliders were controlling like video feedback, and it was like this unbelievably simplistic thing like it was just you were basically playing with you know video feedback as if like you know you have a a camera plugged into a tv and then you point the camera at the tv um and the sliders would sort of like mutate the video feedback um but i just and it it, then in the background it's messing with you know some little music clips that was contributed but um I, i i found like that just sort of these very like it, this is a, a much more simple system than some of the other stuff I've made, but um, your control over the system is very direct. Instead of it being filtered through, originally that this was going to be like I was making this video feedback engine, and I was going to make like a like a shooter or something, like a, a space shooter that was using this video feedback in the background. Um, and eventually, I was just like, why am I making a space shooter when I've just spent like after I after I implemented this video feedback system that was going to um, be part of the space shooter, I spent like three hours or something just playing with the debug mode where I controlled the settings for the video feedback. I'm like, why am I even trying to make a video game when it's more fun to just play with the debug mode? I should just release the debug mode, and then I literally did that. Um, so I've got, um, I started making a lot of these, there was a, a, I released a package called Sweet Nothings, which was just sort of a collection of some of these more toy-like games, where it's just sort of, I make some sort of a weird mechanism, or I make like a generator for cellular autonoma, and then you kind of interact them in this very direct way, like your, um, you know, your controls are sort of just like moving the parameters of the system, and then you get to watch how it, how it changes. And most of these, there was no game to it, there was no plot or, or no like no goals, it was all very undirected, it was just sort of, here's something, just have fun with it, mess around with it. I really, and, I really like, I just want to interject, I really like yeah. uh, Sweet Nothings and that stuff, because I feel like that's kind of when you found your own creative voice. Um, I, yeah, I was, I feel really satisfied with everything from that era in a way that I wasn't satisfied with the stuff I'd been making before. Um, it's, it's just interesting, because it's, um, it's, it's like interactive software like you can interact with it it's sort of like a tool some of them um, more some of them more than others um, but it's also like art 
It's it's like it's like a tool that's a piece of art, and that's something that I haven't seen very much. Like, um, you know, I feel like we have in this era, you know, things are so delineated. Like, uh, either you're making a game, and if you're in the game community, like you were, there's so much pressure to like push everything that you're doing towards the sort of game thing. Or you're making a tool, and if if you're making a tool, you need to make it in the way that like it's usable for a maximum number of people and it has all these robust features and all that kind of stuff or you're doing like you know uh experimental video like a light show for somebody if you want to do like you know some kind of experimental video stuff but like doing something that kind of combines those in a w way i just i've just never seen them quite combined in the way with that sort of sensibility in the way that you have in in those works yeah, that was, I think that that was, that was an interesting period. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to really be able to get back to what I was doing then, but it was sort of, so I was, I think that when, so after I made the Sweet Nothings games, um, I started like, a lot of the Sweet Nothings programs were almost sort of art tools. Like, I, I found I was spending lots of time in like Howler or some of the similar programs, like setting up weird looking images by, you know, you know, sort of bumping the parameters and moving things into place, and then um, uh, Howler and one of the games called, from Sweet Nothings called Sunsets uh, both had screenshot buttons, and I found I was using the screenshot buttons more and more, and eventually I was realizing, well, if, 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 I, I don't know, they, they were starting to feel a little bit like art programs, and I was like, well, maybe I could just make art programs. I made... Um, one of the other things I did make for the iPhone was sort of like this drum machine program, so I was like, well, the drum machine was fun, I should make some art programs. Um, so I made a couple of these sort of things that were, you, you know, Liz has mentioned tools. They were they were literally tools. I made something called um, uh, Become a Great Artist in Just 10 Seconds with um, Michael Bro, who is just an absolutely amazing artist. Yeah. Um, uh, and both, was, of, both of you together is a, was a really great combination. <laughs> but it was sort of funny because I had been at that point making a lot of things that were sort of borderline art programs. Um and I was all gung-ho to make uh, something that was a game because uh, Michael is, is very, very good at, you know, kind of system design for games, you know, game design with capital letters. Um, so I was excited about that. And we had this idea that the game we were going to make for Ludum Dari, we, that uh, Great Arts was made for Ludum Dari. The entire thing was made in 96 hours. Um, and it's Which is kind of remarkable if, probably yeah, if the most... you understand, like, where what that program has done afterwards, but I'll talk about yeah, it later. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably the most substantial, probably the most significant thing I've made, and it was made in 96 hours, but it was also kind of like, I don't know. So we started, we had this idea, we'd, we'd agreed that we were going to collaborate on Illumin Dari, and, um, which, I, uh, by the way, if, if, no, if people, I, I don't know if people listening to your podcast have already got the uh, weird indie games literacy. Ludum Dare has a 48-hour version where all the teams had to be one person, and then a 72-hour version that has some looser rules. Among them, you're allowed to collaborate with people. So we started off, um, we, we had this agreement, uh, me and Michael, that we were going to make a game for a Ludum Dare, um, and we'd do the 96-hour version, um, which we did, and then we released a, an update 24 hours later that fixed some bugs um, and added a couple things. But um, we had this idea before we started that whatever it was we made was going to involve um, procedurally generated graphics because both he and I had done a lot of stuff with procedurally gra generated graphics and art. And I had this idea that it should be like 
a, a game which is using procedural graphics techniques like as verbs. Um, so we spent the first evening just making uh, procogen stuff, making little like mutators for uh, for images. And at the end of the evening, Michael's like, "Why does why is this just not the game?" Like Michael's like, "Let's not make a game. Let's just we're making an art program. Basically, we're making all these little visual art verbs." we should just, you know, make, we should just run with that. We should just make it an art program on purpose. Um, and so it was kind of funny because uh, before, at the time, Michael was making these extremely, extremely systemic, you know, extremely mechanical video games. And that, that's definitely what Michael's known for. Like a, yeah, a lot of, and I was, a lot of video making, game formalist people really like his designs. Yeah. I mean, he's very, very good at it. He's yes, got, he's um, excellent at it. But, um, and then I was making these sort of more things that were like more art program like and then Michael talked us into like just just make an art program and um, that was the first time that I'd actually made something that was just a pure art program so we made this this thing called become a great artist in just 10 seconds I remember um, when you messaged me and you're like should I call this glitch picks or become a great artist and I was like yeah. definitely become a great artist yeah it was uh, we were it was glitch picks just seemed like too good a name the the name we went with was great especially because everyone a lot of people have wound up just referring to it as great artist mm -hmm. uh some I, I always i always type it out in capital letters but um it's it's kind of fun to have like the thing you're known for be known as great artist and anyway <laughs> um great art by great artist something like that um but yeah so if you haven't played this game um which you might as well because it's free um it's basically an unhelpful art program. Uh, it's sort of, I don't know, I think I've described it as either an art program pretending to be a game or a game pretending to be an art program. But it's, uh, it's, it's sort of packaged like a game. It's, it starts off and it, it, it presents itself like it's got goals. Um, it gives you like six missions and in each one you're supposed to draw something. Um, so it's got a sketchpad mode where you're just drawing the art and then it's got this mode where it's grading you on um, here, draw draw some flowers. Uh, draw this picture of a person. And um, if you actually try to use the art tools, the art tools are completely impossible to do anything with on purpose. They like one cycles all the colors on screen very rapidly. One sort of smears the screen to the right. One sort of like you know floods weird little squares around. Um, there's something sort of like a paintbrush, but it's hidden. Um, we're trying, we don't want it to be very obvious to you how to use it. And you cannot draw anything on purpose with this. You cannot draw a flower. You can't draw a person's head. It just <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Uh, what you can do is you can draw like weird abstract art. And that's really the point. The point is the sketchpad mode. That's what you're supposed to be using. But the, uh, the game sort of lays itself out with this sort of challenge mode just as sort of a kind of misdirection. It's all about just trying to get you to engage enough with the game to get it, which is there pretty much just to trick you into engaging with the game. Um, or at least this is how I look at it. I'm not sure if this is how Michael looks at it, but I look at it as there's any number of people who if you tell them just play around with this art program, they might not do it. But if you try to be like, oh, here's a game, see if you can use these tools to reproduce flower, they might actually try to do that. And then by the time that they realize that you can't actually do it and we're just sort of playing a practical joke on them. Uh, by that point, they've figured out the tools enough that they're actually having fun with it and then they'll just keep running with it. It's really interesting like how much depth there wound up being in <laughs> Great Artist as an art program. Yeah. 
Um, because there's, I mean, there's a set of people who have gotten really good with it, and every single person who's gotten really good with it has this completely different style. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's sort of it works at these kind of two levels. I think when people first start using it, they're just mashing buttons, and then it's like it's fun to mash buttons. Um, I remember like when my sister was like six or seven, we had this old program for you know Mac OS seven called Baby Smash. It was literally every time that you hit a button, it would just play a random sound effect and draw like some kind of square, a circle in a random place on the screen. And it was designed for literally you just give it, it was designed for someone like my five-year-old sister. It was designed for like we could put her in front of the screen and she could mash on the keyboard and it would make stuff happen on the screen and she just had so much fun with that. And at the base level of Great Artists is basically just that, that you're smashing buttons on the keyboard and it's playing noises and doing weird things to the screen. And that's just very fun. You might not be able to draw a flower, but you can kind of get a sense of like what the different tools do and how to use them. Um, and there's like every single tool is mapped to a different key. So there's you know, out of the 36 keys on the keyboard or whatever, that's 36 little tiny paint tools. And um, if you get if you start getting used to them, you can eventually sort of like go, oh, okay, well I've got a sense of like it looks good when I do this, it doesn't look so good when I do this. And eventually, you kind of start to generate a style and like. So Liz, uh, who's can, doing can, this podcast... Can, can we pause for a second so I can talk yeah. about this? Um, okay. Yeah, so, no, go go for it. Um, so one thing I wanted to say was um, I found the, the game part really interesting and funny because when I had first started playing the game, or whatever you want to call it, the program, I really thought that the game was that too. And I, I thought, like, for a while I was really convinced that, you know, maybe it was possible to actually solve the puzzles or whatever and to draw a thing and then I think I you know realized that it was a joke but it's just funny it's funny to me um how this program has all this depth and yet like you're drawn into like the the section of it which is completely useless and is a joke and it's actually like making fun of the idea that it's a game and um it was really interesting because it it you know got submitted to um the IGF, the Independent Games Festival, and people who were leaving judges' comments, a lot of people were like, hated the game because they were like, there's there's nothing here, it's just like fucking with you, this is just like weird Dadaist, and like they didn't get that the game was the actual sketchpad thing, like they didn't understand that, and even when you tried to talk to them, I, I still think they didn't realize that, and like a lot of people just did not understand that at all, like that it was actually an art program, because they're like, well, why do you have this other thing? And that's the thing that I they think is interesting. Somebody actually called it bad net art. Um, and uh, I camera. I don't know if my my microphone's pick it up, but it's uh, I'm laughing. <laughs> um, and because there's this idea, I think in uh, as far as design goes, in like elegance in design, like things need to be clear. It needs to be apparent what they're doing. And the users need to know what they're getting into when they open the program so that there isn't all this mystery there. And this, this program operates in the exact opposite way. In, in It's totally mysterious what it's actually supposed to do. It seems like it might just be like this like Dadaist joke or it's just like poorly programmed or something like that. But then when you actually like play with it, you realize there's all this other stuff in there. So I like after I played with it a little bit, I think I forgot about it for like a month or two, and then I looked back at it just because uh, the thing that struck me about it was um, in some of your other games there were like a few inputs, 
um, where you know you could change the sounds or the visuals. In this game, there were like what you said, twenty six, even more than that. It's, I think though, it's I haven't counted, but almost every single key on the keyboard has some use. Yeah, because like ones like most people don't even notice. But like you can use the F keys, for example. Yeah, the number almost keys. Almost every button does something. Yeah, I didn't even know about the F keys until later. You told me about them, but uh, and like the number keys, and you have to figure out what each of the keys do. But once you do, I think I don't know if I was just experimenting with it just to like, just for fun, or just because I was bored, or I don't know. It's just something like I turned off the audio for the program and would like listen to my own music and just like hit mess around and hit keys and stuff. Um, just to have like something to post because I'm not like the most conventionally skilled artist. But after I started messing with it, I found this like really weird wormhole, like where after a certain point, like I s really started to get sucked in just based on the things that a few of the keys could do, and it like opened up this like huge range of possibility. And I ended up spending a really long time on it, and I ended up selling some of my prints, like my album cover thing is is like made uh for like ep year zero is made with great artists like a i've done a lot of art with great artists i've done like the background for my website it's like good for textures and that kind of stuff often but it's like because it's not completely like perfectly designed in a lot of ways it actually um makes it more something about the imperfections of the program actually make it first of all it makes it more fascinating to me because it's always like this kind of mysterious enigma but um it also i don't know like staring into the this sort of abstract void where everything is being made by these complicated math equations and then all of a sudden you mess with it and and sometimes just by happenstance you get something that looks like a really pretty picture and it there might be some weird things in it but like it looks like something that someone could have drawn almost like and you start to feel like oh my god like everything that i see is like everything that i'm looking at i'm looking at it at pixels and stuff everything that i'm looking at is like a math equation and it kind of like totally makes me it i feel like i started to see the world differently after i like messed with it after a certain point because people would always ask like are there like source images here or are <laughs> there, like you know is there like are you modifying are you because like glitch art it's not even really glitch art this game is not really glitch art because the thing with glitch art is you take something and then you modify it or it gets corrupted by a program and it gets broken apart. This isn't a corruption, really. It's it's designed a certain way and it's not really... I mean, it does start off with, like, an existing image, but that image is, like, generated. And, you know, you can very easily wipe it off of the screen uh, um, if you know how to do that. So all these, like, images are being made in a void... And that's what's kind of, like, fascinating to me, like, that um, you stare into the abyss, like, long <laughs> enough, and all these, like, shapes and weird s sounds and things that, like, that you would have never thought, like, that you would have never, a ever anticipated start coming through, and it, it really, like, kind of, like, I don't know, it's, it's weird to, like, talk about it this way, but it kind of expanded my consciousness in a way, <laughs> like... I, I don't know, like, and maybe this is just, I don't know if the program would have continued, would have, like, had its, like, reputation if I hadn't messed with it more, or me and, like, one other person, you know, maybe, like, Ian Snyder or, or the great artist bot, like, um, hadn't messed with it a little more, 
but it's just it's really bizarre to me like it made me aware how much possibility is there in very simple things with interactions and like there's no way that you would know that like the the j key and the i key and the m key would all go together well and that and that like or like using the darkening brush would like create these weird sort of impressions and and detail that you would you can't see before or like a lot of other sort of interactions there's no way that you or michael could have known that and yet it's something that like emerges and it's just it's funny because i see people in the game design realm talking about emergence and like we want emergent gameplay but almost all the time like most games that have emergent gameplay just don't really particularly engage me that much in the end um but this is like truly emergent like it's art that is just coming out of a void and i i guess that's what i find like totally fascinating about it yeah there, there was a lot there let me let me kind of work backward through that so first off it uh, out of the people who've used great artists, Liz is probably one of the foremost. She was using, um, you, like, she had this Tumblr up where she was posting new great artist-based images, like, for a good year uh, mm. after it came out, maybe more than that. And they were all, like, me and Michael were looking at these images and going, like, I don't even know where she got these from. Like, Liz basically was using the tools in, like, some way that, like, like we weren't even... It, just the way that she combined them kind of turned them into something completely new. And, like, me and Michael were not even sure, like, six months in, like, we weren't really sure how Liz was doing it. And then two months after that, she was making images that looked nothing like the ones from two months before, and we still couldn't figure out how she did it. I finally, after, like, a year, got to actually watch her do it. Now, I think I sort of get what her, her technique is. But, um, but, yeah, Great Artist, when we first released it, I was actually kind of starting to gradually drift away from from making games at all at that point. It was kind of funny. I was it was one of the something I one of the last things I released before I kind of entered a dry spell. And um, I think me and Michael didn't really understand the importance of what we'd made for a couple of months. Like we won some category in Ludum Dare. It was the best I'd ever done in Ludum Dare. But um, so that was that was cool. But it was about like two or three months after it came out. Uh, we started realizing that there were like people using it. There were actually like a decent number of people using it. People were building things on top of it, like Liz with her Tumblr or uh, the great art bars you mentioned. Someone named Anthony. Anthony somebody. I forget his name. Okay, Anthony somebody from the internet um, took become a great artist and wired it up to a, a Twitter bot. And so like twice a day, this Twitter bot connects to the internet. Anthony and Prestia. Prestia. Okay. Twice a day, this bot launches Become a Great Artist, hits random buttons for, for about a minute, and then posts the result to Twitter. Um, and to me, that was just awesome that, like, I had made something and then people were making new things on top of it, sort of. That, like, a, like that, was, that was just really cool to me. But it, it actually kind of picked up steam after a few months. And I'm, I'm certain Liz's images were kind of contributing to that. She actually, um, she actually wound up eventually making clothing, uh, selling clothing with the with stuff that she'd made in great artist on it. So that was that to me, that was just like super cool. There was all this, I thought I'd made a video game and instead like there was, there's like clothing coming out of this. Um, <laughs> and it, it did kind of, um, I made the two games I made after this were sort of similar in the sort of stuff that they were sort of like art programs, but sort of like not designed like art programs designed sort of like with like game like interfaces. I made something called Icosa uh, which is, it's another video feedback thing, but it's a lot more sophisticated than the thing I was talking about earlier. And you're actually intended to play it with actually like a, a 360 controller, basically. 
you're in this like this 3D icosahedron, and you're moving around in it, and you know manipulating the icosahedron, and it it generates various images because there's stuff painted on the inside of the icosahedron, and um, your movement alters what's being drawn, and uh, this also has a screenshot button prominently built in. Um, I made a similar game called an, another kind of not quite an art program called Scrunch. It was actually something that made me really happy was um, that after a while you actually started you started seeing people who are making these sorts of like art programs with non-art program like interfaces uh, and people actually started okay, I started seeing people refer to them as MCC likes which I thought was uh, was gratifying um, there was the, there was the art machine by strange think and then yeah there was something strange else. think uh, strange think has made a bunch of games that are along the same lines of become a great artist in icosa he I don't I don't know any evidence he's even played my stuff um, actually I don't know why I just said he I don't have any idea what strange things gender is yeah they never um, specified their gender yeah anyway um strange think has uh, has made a bunch of stuff which is along the same lines of a great artist in icosa um, and I, I don't know any evidence that they've played um, Great Artist or any of my stuff, actually. I'm, I'm actually really happy about that, that it's it's sort of a medium large enough, um, by which I mean sort of this sort of like abstracted art program thing. It's sort of a medium I think, large enough to, to support multiple probably, people. I think they've maybe, probably but, seen Great Artist. I, but I, they've, they've got this really unique style, which is yeah. off on a completely different direction than anything I'm doing. It, it stands alone completely. Yeah. So I'm I'm really happy to see someone else doing like something sort of like this, but so completely separate um i i thought art machine was interesting i played with it i don't think mm -hmm. um something about it didn't work maybe it was just like too well designed or something i that's silly to say so um uh, liz earlier you brought up the question of whether or not great artist is glitch art and um i think fundamentally it is because what i what i see glitch art as really being about is about processes that are made visible so when we talk about glitch, we're we're usually referring to like a system breaking down. We're refusing. We're we're referring to, um, you know, a CD is scratched, and uh, or we're referring to you know, you've corrupted a file, and usually what we're seeing are mechanisms or formats that are normally invisible um, becoming visible. When you hear like those those distinctive chirp chirp noises from a scratched CD. Um, you are hearing sort of the the artifacts of the way that the CD is built and manufactured and, and the way that it plays back and the way that the CRCs work. Um, if you have a, you know, a, a video file that gets corrupted and you see these weird, like, chunky, smeary things appearing everywhere, what you're seeing are, like, the invisible algorithms of the, of the file format, of the video compression format, um, that are supposed to just faithfully reproduce an image and sudden, instead suddenly becoming visible unto themselves. Um, most glitch is about a medium or a process um, suddenly making its innards visible to you. Um, and so I think that glitch, the glitch feeling comes out a lot um, even if you take away the element of unintentionality. Um, just out of having a mechanism or a process which makes itself very plain and very visible, or, or the fact that it's it's not a it's not a file that's being corrupted intentionally, like some glitch art too, I guess is because that's that's the way that I was seeing it, like because mm -hmm. it was designed as yeah. part of the program. I think that's a totally sensible way to look at glitch, um, but to me, there's there is sort of that sort of family resemblance in the fact that what you're doing is you're applying processes. 
and everything you see is the output of those processes and sort of the byproducts of those processes. And um, you know, you, you do start with the, the opening image, but those themselves, they disappear pretty quickly. They're just there to have some, you know, to get some entropy into the system. Um, but ultimately what you're seeing is just these sort of repeated actions, these, these processes just sort of piling up on each other over and over and interacting in different ways. Um, and Icosa is, is much the same. Icosa is a little bit more literally glitch art um, because it's, uh, it's, it's literally, you know, generating things out of, this, out of this video feedback process. But moving back even further than that, so in, I think in game design, I think what's really important to me, the most important thing, maybe the only important thing, is sort of the, the imp effect that you're having on the player. Um, what sort of impact you're having on them and, and what you're sort of inspiring them to do, the sort of the mental state you're inspiring in them. And I think that insofar as there's any design and great artist at all, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can talk to the mindset of Michael Bro. Um, he might have his own feelings, but I'm, this, is, this is how I see it. Um, to the extent there's any design in great artist, the design is really all about making the, the player feel comfortable with playing. That's the effect that we're trying to have on them. We're trying to kind of engineer a mind state in them where they, they feel comfortable just playing and messing around and they don't feel ashamed of just creating and, and, and throwing paint at things. And I think this is, I think this is kind of actually important. That's that, it's not really a, a trivial thing to, to engineer. Um, when we started showing Great Artist, uh, we have a slightly different version. It cuts out the title screen. It um, it shows um, it sort of if you if you leave it alone for about 15 seconds, it starts sort of playing itself. Actually, the version we produced uh, uses a set of about a 50 to 100 images made actually by Liz. Uh, we we took some of Liz Le Liz Ryerson's greatest hits. <laughs> and the, uh, the the demo mode is if you if you don't if you're in if you're using the version that we we use when we're um, when we're exhibiting the game, uh, every 15 seconds, if you don't press anything, it mashes some random buttons, and then it just shows a random image from the the Liz Ryerson file. Um, and when we were exhibiting it, um, we we actually um, the, a problem that I kept having was that people would sort of look up, walk up to it, and they'd see this this thing on the screen, sort of like you know, showing them random strange images, and they just sort of stared at it really fascinating for a second, and then they'd walk on. And uh, what I found very quickly once I started exhibiting it was I would, I would ask people, hey, uh, do you want to give it a try? And they'd always say almost the exact same thing. They'd say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to play it. And we, when we were exhibiting it, we, the last time we did it, we actually just had a little piece of paper tape up that said, instructions, press keys on keyboard which is what it says in the, in the game's uh, title screen when you're playing it normally. Mm -hmm. They just say, well, I don't, I, don't know what, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to play it. I was like, oh, just go ahead and press buttons. <laughs> and uh, once they had, like, it was sort of like me saying that was giving them permission to mess around. Like they couldn't just walk up and start hitting buttons and risk making a fool of themselves. But once I'd said, like, oh, do you, do you want to try it? Just, just hit the buttons. They, they sort of had given permission, and then they were willing to sort of play around. And once they started playing around, they'd usually stay at the machine for a very long time. <laughs> um, but they sort of had to get over that mental hump first of, you know, allowing themselves to, you know, to, to seem ridiculous, to just sort of mess around and not really know why or, or have an intentionality to it. Well, that, that's um, um, a really interesting 
uh, extension uh, or a problem with like programs and game culture in that there's an idea that there's a right way to do things. Like most games yeah. are designed, almost all games are designed with a right way to do things. And so there's a lot of pressure that's being put on you like in order to solve, correctly solve the puzzle or solve the thing that you need to solve. Oh, or with a program, like, you know, there are ways that features are intended to be used and you are supposed to use them that way. And there's a lot of stigmatization against using them improperly. Like if you don't uh, play thing in the right way, then someone might look at you strange or, or be like, like, oh, you know, clearly you have no idea what <laughs> you're doing. And it's embarrassing. It's like socially. So like something like artists giving people permission to kind of fuck up because that's the whole game. Like you have to fuck up everything in order to figure out anything. Um, it's just, it's a totally different way of thinking about it. I think that might be why so many people have issues with it could couldn't right well but, but it's also the case that i mean like i mean the the game itself is about the design is about trying to get you to get over those excuse yeah me. sorry i was i was coughing the game <laughs> itself is about trying to get you to get over those hang-ups so you know art itself um there's kind of like i don't know i i think like you, Liz, when you when you started using it, I remember like when when you first started getting into it, like a few, a few months after it had come out, you were saying something about how like you were having a lot of trouble making music at the time because you sort of felt this sort of real fear of failure. That you you were saying something along the lines. I, of, like, I'm still having those problems. I see, but um, you were saying something about how like your 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 main art, you know, um, the music mostly, you know, you were sort of like afraid to make something because what if it turns out badly. But then you felt really comfortable using great artists because in great artists there was sort of there was not really any pressure to it that you know it was almost I, I don't know if it was what it was but it, it felt like it was something sort of like because everything turns out badly in great artists or because you know you you kind of can't you know your your musical process I, I know because I've I've listened to like when I've 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 listened to your works in progress while you were working on things before you've got this really kind of perfectionist um, yeah approach to making music you know you really iterate on stuff and and it, it seems to really bother you if something's like not completely perfect and finished but something in great artist can't be finished you don't have fine control if you think well this would be better if it was a little bit more green you can't do that you've only got the verbs that are in the program you can make amazing things with them but you you can't you know you can't just sort of go like this is what i want it to look like and then do that you kind of have to let the program lead and um, I've seen the way you, you, you do great artist. And like uh, when I do great artist, I use the undo button a lot. There's, there's a button um, for those who haven't played it that let you, lets you rewind by five or ten seconds. So if you mess something up, you can, you can go back. Liz never uses I, the undo key. I use it sometimes, but rarely. Very, very rarely. It's usually when Liz, Liz is just kind of always going forward in that program. And that's the thing that the program kind of encourages, right? It's like sort of don't worry too much if you mess it up. Don't worry about making it perfect. It can't be perfect. It's messed up to start with. Um, and I think that there's really a lot of freedom, of this feeling of freedom that comes around. It's almost kind of liberating in terms of you, you can't mess up. And a lot, of the, a lot of what the game is doing is kind of encouraging you not to take it too seriously. You know, the, the presentation is all kind of like weird and wacky. The, um, <laughs> we, we had a problem where... Um, the uh, when when we were finishing it, you know, we were working at great speed. Um, the pixel font that we were using in the uh, on the title screen was just whatever came with the the Lua package that I built it on top of, and it it had really bad anti-aliasing. The anti-aliasing was just really ugly, so I just ran a filter so that like the anti-aliased gray pixels turned into bright red, 
and now it just looks like all the text is weird and kind of messed up and like maybe slightly dripping blood or something. I don't know. It just, but um, the game itself looks, you know, the, there was the comment of bad net art that some anonymous critic leveled against it. It looks like ba bad net art, but the thing is, what you're doing in this program is you're making bad net art. And everything in the presentation of this program and the design of the program is trying to just convince you that that's okay, that it's okay to make bad net art, that you don't have to feel bad about making bad net art. You don't have to feel bad about playing around and just mashing buttons. You don't have to feel bad if what you came up with is just weird abstract art. You know, the, the, the program is kind of like, you know, we're, we're not any better than you. And I think really if there's, if there's any kind of a message in the program, I started to feel after I've been out a while, like almost the kind of the message is that like, you can just, you know, you don't have to take things so seriously. You don't have to take art or games so seriously. You can just sort of mess around and get something good. You know, me and Michael can just sort of throw a bunch of generative art techniques you've got into a program, map them to random buttons, and you're having, you know, as much or more fun with this as you are with a lot of stuff, which is like an intentionally designed game with, with really carefully tuned mechanics and all that. Yeah. It's, it's sort of... You know, and that's that's a kind of where it ties back into glitch art. That there, it's got this sort of like, you know, mistakes are beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Chaos is beautiful. You know, we, we can kind of just embrace nonsense, and it's it's fun. It's okay. You know, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I th I, I remember you saying uh, in reference to to Jumpman when we had talked like a, a long time ago. Uh, you were saying that like level design to you is kind of a dark art. Like you don't understand it, and I think. <laughs> Maybe one of the reasons is that's a process that is so much about pl expectation and there's so many levels of like communicating with the players and there's a lot of uh, iteration oftentimes or like uh, kind of perfectioni perfectionism that goes into that process um, that if you're programming a game or you're making a game is not particularly fun. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and and that's the that's the interesting thing about great artists and stuff is that you you can you can make this thing, and it's really interesting and it doesn't have to be. So many people try to make games, you know, in in a short period of time, and you know, um, y where you're like walking around and you're 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 moving stuff on a screen, and and that's great, but like there's not much going on in there, and there like maybe aren't super deep mechanics or whatever. But if you're just doing this in entirely abstract thing then it's totally achievable within a short period of time and you can actually uh produce stuff from it that that's pretty interesting and worthwhile and why should it have to you know be traversable in the way that a game is you know yeah and i mean i think that like so there's um you know I, i've kind of played down a couple times maybe what great artists is doing like i kept mentioned i mentioned a few times that it was made in 96 hours and i think that there's there was some there was definitely some. There were definitely some things that went into great artists that I think help it work so well. Like me and Michael did. You know, we we made the game very quickly, but we were sort of bringing into it a bunch of generative art techniques that both of us had been honing over like a lot of different projects. I think we we again I can't speak for Michael, but um, I've I've seen his work, and I think we'd both kind of gotten to the point of having an understanding of like when you you know take certain kinds of processes and just you know recurse on them over and over and over or, or mash them together in different ways, you know, it's pretty likely that, you know, something interesting is going to come out of it. Um, I've seen, you know, some of the art, some of the tools or some of the art things that Michael put in, I can recognize in some of his previous games. Yeah, a lot of his um, games use generative art very yeah, effectively. Yeah, and you can, you can see sort of like, I feel like some of the tools in Great Artists, I can look at them and go like, say, or some of the, you know, the starting generative images, I can look at those and go like, oh, hey, I, this is, 
This is sort of like this effect that appeared in a previous Bro game. I can definitely point to some of the things I added and say, well, this is similar to this thing I did in a previous game. We were sort of like, you know, all just, you know, both bringing in our bag of tricks and just sort of dumping them all over the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that was just sort of the understanding of like, you know, you can, you know, just sort of, a lot of that was just sort of, you know, the awareness of like, you know, really it's, it's, it's enough to just sort of mash certain things together and, and, and something interesting usually comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that thing that you were saying about like, you know, it kind of being more interesting to be a little more relaxed, um, you know, I, I see you know, I see Great Arts as kind of like, it came after this this process that I was mentioning earlier of, you know, starting off making very formal, very intentional things, and then sort of letting the computer drive a little bit more. You know, sort of these these more sort of like free-form things I was making, where really it was sort of like, instead of me trying to impose on the game, you know, this particular design that I came up with and thought was a good idea, I'm just sort of like, you know, creating the system and then exploring the system myself and, and letting the system tell me what's interesting you know, sort of doing trial and error and saying, like, you know, the these these systems are interesting by themselves. It's enough to sort of let them stand alone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess kind of, you know, backing way out, um, I sort of, like, I, I feel like there's sort of, like, this arc in my game's, quote, career, unquote, <laughs> um, of, you know, me, me sort of going you know, starting off making these very mechanical things and then making these things that are sort of more mechanical toys and then that sort of gradually morphing into art programs. Um, and after that, I sort of took a break of a couple of years. I, I, I tried to make a programming language. Yeah, uh, could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sure. But um, but after that, I've actually I've actually started making stuff again. And um, like I said, I mentioned this dryad.technology website where I started posting that. And the stuff I've been posting there is sort of almost like just animations. They're just sort of generative art things that you just sort of open in a window and they take over a browser window and play music and do visuals. And they're all using kind of generative techniques. Um, but most of them don't have any interactivity um, out of what I've posted so far. Um, and I do feel it's kind of interesting because I feel like I've, I've been taking different approaches to sort of like, well, what can you do with, um, with generative techniques? And I've, I've sort of explored toys, art programs, and just sort of, you know, free-playing videos. And the, I think the toys are sort of the things that were the most interesting to me. So that's what I'd like to go back to maybe with mm-hmm. time. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so the programming language. Um, so I've, um, I actually, a really, really long time ago, um, when I was in college, I thought I, I, I really had an interest in working on programming languages. Um, I had a I had an internship with um, I, I I don't want to mention the names of anyone I've worked for, but I had an internship with a, a particular large company that made a programming language um, when I was in college, and I was actually hoping to go work for them, and then they uh, ran out of money, um, so I didn't go work for them, um, and I actually kind of just abandoned that entire thing that I'd, I'd been working with like a, a programming language research lab in college and all this stuff. I, I just sort of gave up on all that. Um, but uh, I, I wound up, there was this point where I'd sort of started losing faith in video games. I was sort of not really sure what it was I wanted to do with games. I was struggling a lot with my tools. I was not happy with the tool set that I was using. Um, and then Gamergate happened, and it just sort of like 
a lot of the people I knew left indie games around then, and yeah. the community itself just felt not like a, a place I was welcome. It felt like a very hostile place, and it was just sort of clear, like, you know, you can just be doing your own thing and not bothering anyone, and a bunch of people you'll never, you've never heard of are going to come and destroy you and everyone that you know. And it's just sort of like, you know, I could be doing anything else in the world and not have to worry about, you know, just randomly being targeted by Nazi-linked hate groups. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure that turned out to be true because um, after I spent a couple of years in uh, programming languages, uh, there was an incident earlier this year where a uh, white supremacist blogger was uh, invited to talk at a uh, at a programming conference that I had previously spoken at um, and uh, I signed a petition um, saying that you know having this white supremacist uh, talk at this programming conference he was talking about a programming language but it was he had said a lot of very extreme things that made some people not feel very welcomed at this conference. So I, you know, I signed this letter. Especially in a a realm that has a lot of trouble with diversity. It is absolutely true. I mean, I, I was for a while saying that, um, I left video games to, for, you know, programming language research, you know, as my, as my sort of hobby, um, because it was sort of, you know, less, you know, sexist, racist, et cetera. Uh, and then it just sort of proved me wrong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I signed this petition um, saying I, I, that just, it was a very, very mildly worded p- petition. I could have said stronger things, but we were just saying this is not a good idea to invite this person to, you know, to come and represent your conference. And um, I wound up getting targeted on some website that uh, was set up by Vox Day. Uh, I don't they, know who they, that is. You ever heard of the, the Sad Puppies? Maybe I'm glad that I haven't heard of this. Okay. This guy, this random racist science fiction author who tried to rig the Hugos. Oh, was, I might yeah, have vaguely whole, heard of this. Yeah, the guy who tried to rig the Hugos suddenly got really, really interested in uh, programming language conferences and set up a website to post personal information about all these people who had signed this petition, just sort of mildly saying that inviting a white supremacist to speak is, is not going to help grow your community. It was just all very very weird um but that was at first that that didn't happen um and you know there was this point about two years ago where i I was just video games felt hostile and i wasn't sure what i was doing in them and i was like i'm just going to do something i want to do and um i uh, i wound up making um i i wound up just sort of sitting down and designing a programming language and making an interpreter for it and i spent about a year on that and I might not ever actually use it. The language was called Emily, uh, which is sort of a pun because it's based on a language from the 70s called ML. Mm-hmm. So it's MLE if if you if you get it. Um, <laughs> it's got, which is not uh, it's it's actually I, I'm kind of in good company. There's a lot of programming languages recently have been sort of pattern on ML. Um, Apple Swift uh, is is kind of very in the ML family. What what um, is what is ML's distinguishing feature? Um tagged unions i don't know if i can describe this in a in a in a good way for a podcast but ml is sort of um there's this paradigm of programming called functional programming uh which has uh, gotten somewhat bad like recently um and functional programming kind of has this family tree that sort of has three waypoints on it it, w- it started in the 50s with something called lisp 
mm-hmm. um, which is this really minimalist language um, that's it's got not really any syntax it's almost all just like parentheses and um, it, uh, it it removes a lot of sort of like it's got a lot less syntax than something like C it's just sort of got parentheses and functions and all you do is call functions more or less um, there's no types or anything sometime around the 70s um, this language was developed called ML uh, which later became SML standard ML of New Jersey and then OCaml um, and ML is sort of more, it looks a little bit more like a conventional programming language, uh, but it's still a functional language in, it, it, it's, it looks a little more like a conventional programming language. It's got types like a conventional programming language, but it, it brings a lot of things that, that this weird Lisp language from the 50s had. So that was kind of sort of a path forward for functional programming where they could, um, you know, they could look a little bit more like a conventional language. Was there an application that this was like specifically really suited for uh lisp was most lisp for a lot of its life was used for of all things artificial intelligence research interesting uh there were these things called lisp machines uh in the 80s and a lot of them were that they were they were machines that like lisp was kind of a little bit slower than a conventional programming language um you couldn't compile it for a long time so um in the 70s 80s uh a couple of companies started making these machines just to run Lisp really quickly. They had special hardware designed to run Lisp. And a lot of these were specifically marketed as machines for AI research targeted at universities. Like, uh, I think that they had name, like there was something called like the connection machine. There were, the names and the marketing were all kind of like around the idea of this is designed for AI research. Um, ML actually is a little bit odd because ML, as far as I'm aware, uh, was, came out of programming language research. And actually, for a very, very long time, almost no one, no one did almost anything with ML except write compilers for other programming languages. Um, for a long time, like the, the, the place you were most likely to hear about ML was um, the Carnegie Mellon University. Um, they did their introductory courses in ML, and you were charged, I think, on, on like one of the first classes with, you were supposed to write an ML compiler in ML. And... There's not a lot of evidence that until like the last 10 years or something, anyone was using ML for much of anything other than writing ML compilers over and over. <laughs> um, so, but uh, anyway, somewhere in the late 90s, um, a language was developed called Haskell, which is sort of the weirdest, one of the weirder programming languages to ever gain popularity. Um, Haskell is very closely patterned on ML, but it adds a bunch of new ideas. And uh, in like the last six years or something, um, Haskell got kind of popular among startups in San Francisco for reasons. Um, and then there was a sort of this halo effect that caused a lot of, that kind of led to, a, this is my perception of what happened. There was kind of this halo effect where once Haskell started getting popular, people started taking a closer look at ML. Um, ML is very mathy. It's, uh, it's actually the most, as far as I know, the most serious commercial users of, um, of ML in the world are Jane Street, which is a... Uh, a financial firm. Mm-hmm. Um, they've they've kind of developed their own variant of uh, OCaml, and they um, they do a lot of like mathematical modeling with it. It's it's very good for that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but um, you're now seeing. Um, it is the case that like there's a lot of new programming languages that have started coming out in the last like four or five years, and a lot of them either a lot of them actually are either built using or were originally built using ML. Like uh, Rust, okay. I, I think, started off as 
they started off writing NML. Anyway, I patterned my thing on ML also. It's a it's a functional language, and it's kind of fun because it's almost sort of like a, a gimmick language, the thing I made. it's um, It's got this one weird idea where there's literally nothing in it except functions. So, like, the number three is a function. Um, I'm not sure if I can describe this well on a, a podcast nominally about video games, but... Um, no, it's it's not. It's actually more about, like, digital art and new media stuff. So, all so right. this is totally, totally relevant. Well, so, I made a language that um, um, sort of is, is... I don't think... I mean, it's it's not... I actually, when I started making it, I was originally intending to write video games with it. Uh, and I did get to the point I could do that. I, I Toward the end of last year, I hooked it up to SDL, and I actually made a small endless runner game in it. And I was so happy that I did that. But the other thing is that when I first set it up, I just like, hooked it up to SDL, and I made something that could you know draw tiles, and I made just a simple thing that was just a scrolling background, and it ran at one frame per second. <laughs> because I had never made a programming language before, and I was making a interpreter, and my interpreter was designed uh, for flexibility and for to be easy to read the code not for performance, and it was not yeah. performant at all. Mm-hmm. And I eventually, I, I sat down and I tried to improve the performance, and I eventually got to the point where I could run my simple endless runner game uh, at, at 30 frames a second, and I was really, really proud of that, but it was a, a very simple endless runner game, and a lot of the graphics drawing was happening in C, and uh, I kind of looked at this and went like, okay, I, I did it. I sat down, and I'm like, I'm going to, I, I in part did this because the, the programming languages I was using didn't have quite, quite the properties I wanted. And I like I said, I, I code. I'm a coder. My games are all made in code. A lot of the art in my games is generated. Code is sort of my medium. It's my paintbrush. Mm-hmm. So if I don't have a programming language that works the way I want, I don't have a good paintbrush. So I was trying to make a better paintbrush. And I did it. I was able to make a programming language that I could make a game in. And I got to the end of it, and I looked at this, and I'm like, I'm not going to use this every day. Like, I, I've, I've got a working game. I've I'm really happy with it. It was fun to write my little working game, but this is so simplistic. And building up these tools to the point where it could be actually useful is, guy, um, I don't think it's going to happen. That's 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 just it's going to take all of my time. So at that point, I started looking at other stuff, and that led me toward making sort of the the web stuff I'm making now. Yeah. Um, but I might go back and I might go back and pick the stuff up later. I learned a lot from doing it, just an enormous amount. Um, at the end, I started trying to learn to make a compiler, and I, I never finished that, but I learned a lot from that, too. And um, I, I don't know. I might later on try to uh, apply it to something. Um, so it was a good use. And it was. I think that there's kind of some artistically interesting things about the programming language, if it's not completely pretentious to say that, just because um, the language that I made is, is really... It's got a really pure design. It's all based around one idea, um, which is that... It's it's the language itself is based on something called logical combinators, which I'm definitely not going to try to explain here. Um, it probably won't help if I say that it's basically the point-free lambda calculus. That's probably the the least helpful thing I could say here. Um, it's not actually that complicated. Uh, I just I think we've got maybe 20 minutes left, and I, I can't explain it in 20 minutes. But I did actually. That's um, fine. <laughs> I gave a talk actually at at Lambda Comp, um, which uh, if you. Let's see here. I'm going to look on Google. Um, okay, yes. If you search on Google for Emily Language YouTube, 
there is a video titled LambdaConf 2015 Introducing Emily Simplifying Functional Programming. And I actually do explain the entire language and what's interesting about it and what's unique about it in, in 25 minutes. Uh, and I'm, I, the talk is actually maybe the best thing to have come out of the entire Emily project, that I've got this 25-minute talk where I try to lay out this completely ridiculous sort of mathematical idea, and then I show that you can build a programming language that just sort of looks like Python on top of it um, with just that one thing. So it was, it was really cool to... Um, I think I've, I've heard people describe my game work as sort of being about computation and sort of the what you can do with computation. And Emily was sort of like a really big proof of concept about what you can do with one really simple form of computation and just how far you can take it. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I kind of I find it interesting how um, looking at your uh, your new stuff that you're working on, the Dryad.technology, it's kind of come full circle into like... Um, what could be described as demo scene or like kind <laughs> of, uh, net art or just interactive. It, it's like kind of going back to that sort of interactive web page, interactive tool thing with that. I think like definitely characterized. I mean, I talked to Natalie Lawhead um, about um, like some net art a little bit and about and Andrea Harvey from tale of tales and also um uh, this guy Kabibo, who makes, um, who does stuff with uh, Web yeah. WebGL. Kabibo stuff is interesting. Yeah, and like, um, I think a lot of this stuff is also, um, a lot of these things are maybe being applied towards VR now. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually inter I'm really interested in VR. I'm hoping I get to work with it sometime soon. Yeah, and I think like, I don't know, for me thinking about um, other applications outside games. Um, I see a lot of, you know, experimental video and that kind of stuff happening with, um, you know, being uh, accompanying, like, uh, electronic music or pop music or whatever for, like, videos and, and um, you know, or, like, uh, Kabibo, uh, he designed, um, Isaac designed a website for the uh, IDM uh, artist Plaid. Uh, huh. And that's, that's a good match. Yeah. And... Um, I, I'm really interested in these things being sort of married together, and I, I, th I think that's the exciting thing about, like, if I had somebody, um, you know, I'm trying to get more into the electronic music world, and, you know, hopefully that'll happen in the future, but if somebody asked me, like, what's the really interesting things that I should check out that are maybe from on the outside of games, I would definitely say become a great artist in Icosa. <laughs> Um, that would probably be the first thing that I would say, and then I'd also say like some of Kabibo's stuff and some uh, some other stuff, um, just because I mean his stuff isn't as explicitly game coming out yeah. of games, but like I think there's a lot of like interesting applications there from uh, design to um, to being married with other forms of art, and um, it just hasn't completely caught on exactly. But um, I I just yeah it's it's weird how um, I, I don't know, something you said to me a while back is like one of, I still think about it, you you basically said, um, I approach uh, art that I make like a scientist and I approach the like technical stuff I make like an artist. And I think that's like a really interesting way of, of thinking about things. I don't know, could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, 
I don't I don't know I, I remember saying that I don't I don't know any way to say it in more detail than than what I said but it because it's it's just sort of that I don't know that's I I sort of um I guess just to expand on the comment um I, I do feel like when I'm when I'm doing art, I'm doing it in a very experimental way. I'm I'm doing it kind of in a you know tinkering and and you know making things and you know trying one thing, seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, you know trying something slightly different. You know sometimes it, I really am just applying the scientific process um, when I'm designing. I find I, I get much better results if I'm designing that way than if I'm trying to come up with an idea and then impose it on on the thing I'm creating. Um, and when I'm doing tech, I, I kind of, I feel like if, if we're just, you know, doing tech with our logical brains, we're probably maybe not doing something that's as interesting or as deep or as beautiful as, as it could be. You know, it's, I'd, I'd like to be able to make tech that has sort of like, you know, aesthetic or conceptual qualities to it. I've, I've, I've made, you know, a lot of my games have been sort of practical jokes almost. And, and the, the, the couple of years I spent making programming language, I was more or less doing almost practical jokes like Emily is sort of like a Emily is based on um, it's it's actually almost its main point of inspiration is something called unlambda there's an entire set of programming languages which are literally practical jokes um, there's a language called intercal uh, which is from the night some I don't remember it's I think it's from the 80s or 70s it's very very old um, and it's a programming language which was just some people from Stanford who said maybe it was Caltech no it was Caltech who sat down and tried to make the most perverse, horrible programming language they could imagine. Uh, the numbers are specified in Trinary, uh, like base three. The um, they the instead of a go-to statement, it has come from, um, so that while the program is running, uh, if you hit a certain point, the come from statement will lurch you out of where you are and yank you to another part of the program. Um, the it seems manual like was, oh like a weird alternate universe programming language or something. Yeah, it was it was basically a language designed as a parody, and there's an entire set of pathological programming languages that are that's really sort of funny, sort of inspired by this. I think if, if you're talking about doing uh, science with your creative brain, this is what this looks like. This is they're working programming languages. You can make uh, there's a there's a principle called. Um, Turing completeness, which says that any programming language of a certain power is completely equivalent to every other programming language. No programming language is more powerful or weak than another. Some are just more convenient. And but these these things are working programming languages, but they're jokes. They're they're <laughs> they're they're parodies. They're just there to be silly and fun or to be beautiful in some way. Um, and one of these languages is actually the inspiration for Emily. There's a language called Unlambda, um, which is nothing but functions. It's um, it's it's just um, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's you don't have any variables. You don't have any numbers. You have to emulate everything using functions. If you want to use the number three, you have to create something called a church numeral, which is a set of chained functions that emulate the number three. And you can fake out plus using just chaining all these functions together. Um, and this language was a joke. It was it was the 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 tagline is your pr functional programming nightmares come true. But it's a working programming language, and part of the inspiration for Emily was thinking about this weird practical joke that I'd, I'd read about in high school and thinking like, wait a minute, if you changed a couple of things, this could actually be useful. Um, similarly, like after that, I actually did a I did a series of blog posts earlier this year um, when I was initially trying to learn to make a compiler in the hopes of maybe writing an Emily compiler before I changed gears completely. Um, I wrote a series of uh, blog posts called No Compiler, um, where I'm like, I've, I'm going to try to 
make executables without a compiler, or what I'm going to do is I'm going to hook up to a compiler library, and I'm going to make little tiny programs that sort of are their own compilers. It's, it's, it's hard to summarize, but it makes sense if you read the posts. But these were just sort of these posts that were like walking someone through the process that I was doing. The stuff I was making was completely useless, but I got a lot of people saying they liked the blog posts because I was just sort of like describing this ridiculous idea of um, calling, you know, the functions of the LLVM library directly to make a program instead of, you know, writing a real programming language or a real compiler. Um, you know, just sort of this intentionally ridiculous idea and saying, okay, how far can I go with this? But the process of doing this ridiculous thing, you know, caused me to learn a lot about compilers and the blog posts that I wrote um, while, you know, doing this thing, the no compiler posts are all actually pretty good for learning about, about programming. And I mean, this is something, this is something that I've, I've been doing for a very long time of just sort of like screwing around or having fun or trying to make art it turns out to be a really good way to, you know, sort of learn about technical things or mathematical things. You know, I, I made this angels program that I mentioned at the start of the podcast and it it never produced a game, but I learned, I, I was having a lot of fun doing it because I learned a lot about, you know, hyperbolic geometry, which is like really, really interesting stuff. But it's like, it's, it's, if you just go and you read about hyperbolic geometry and read the, or read the Wikipedia page or whatever, it's all very dry and confusing. It's sort of like, I don't, I don't understand what this is trying to tell me. It's all just equations. Um, but when I was making the game, I was sort of actually like, you know, putting it into use. I was actually like doing something with it. Um, and so I got this really good intuitive understanding of hyperbolic geometry because I was actually sort of like putting myself in that space. I was, you know, making things in that space and moving them around, you know, by writing the game. And, um, you know, or, or, or similarly, like, I'm, whenever I'm, you know, I'm exploring all these, these weird technical or mathematical things when I'm making these sort of, you know, system-y games or these system-y toys... Um, but this is like actually, a, this is actually a good way of doing science. You know, this is a good way of learning about hyperbolic geometry or exploring, you know, what cellular autonomy do. Um, and I'm, I'm doing it all through play, but it's, it's sort of, you know, there's, I, I don't know if I'd say it's legitimate science, but I'm at least learning about science or learning about math while I do it, which is, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to me. And a it's, lot of the... It's allowing you to interact with them at a more sort of fundamental or like tactile level. Yeah, and it's allowing me to, you know, kind of learn through play, which I think is, is, is a potentially a powerful way of, of learning. I actually, for a really long time, I wanted to make um, some games about, like, weird physics concepts. Like, there's a lot of kind of, like, really unintuitive things in physics that, like, are part of, like, legitimate physical theories, but, like, feel weird or don't fit our real-world intuition. Like stuff in quantum physics, or like um, you some were of the... you were telling me about string theory one time we were hanging out. Yeah. And... <laughs> like there's a there's a in string theory, people build these models of reality um, that are like they're they're real in the sense that they could exist. Like most of what you're doing in physics is you're building models of universes that might exist, and then you're just running the math to see what happens in those universes. And the string theory people took. You know, they took the, uh, the the set of string theory equations that produce a universe that looks basically like ours, and they tweaked them a little bit, and they were able to make a language that had two dimensions of time, like three dimensions of space and two dimensions of time. And you can find papers by these people where they're describing this universe with two dimensions of time and what happens in it and what particles do in it. And I'm just looking at that and screaming, like, what does any of this mean? <laughs> like, two dimensions of time, what, is, what do you mean by that? What, what, how does that do anything? 
And the only thing they give you to try to understand what that might mean is that they give you all of these equations. And I, I, I don't know. That's not, that's not something that has any reality to me. It doesn't have emotional reality to me. On the other hand, something you could do is you could write a simulator. You could, you could write something that just runs those equations and simulates, all right, what, what happens in this, this universe with two-dimensional time? Um, and, you know, if you made that something like a game or something like one of my semi-game toys, you know, you'd be able to interact with that world, right? Like, that's, like, every single computer program is basically a tiny universe. That's what programmers are doing. We're defining little tiny universes that have their own laws of physics. And we can, like, move images in and out or move, like, sounds in and out. Or we can, like, you know, make things and make little robots inside these fake universes and control them and move them around. I don't, I don't think we really ever think about how completely wild that is. It's, it's, that, it's, like, it's funny to me because when you think about, like, if you go further and further down the the sort of science wormhole, you get more and more in mathematical. You get more and more. You're more and more drifting towards things that we consider maybe fundamentally unexplainable or non-scientific. Like not just the the idea of God or a creator, but also like emotions and our uh, people's connections with each other and that kind of stuff. You get more and more into the subjective realm, but it, it's also kind of the opposite in that the further into the subjective realm you get, the more you get into the scientific realm. And it, there's this, like, interaction between those two things that I think is really interesting that, like, our society kind of separates them from each other. Yeah, I, d I, don't, I don't know about that, but... Uh, I don't know. This is just my, my intuition about... But, uh -huh. like, um, I don't know. Like, I, I've heard about, like, theories about, like, the, the, the theory of, like... Um, like David Lynch, for example, when talking mm. about transcendental meditation or something, he'll talk about like the theory of like the unified field or something where like yeah, I think so. There's a bit of a problem where um, okay, so when you get into sort of like certain kinds of high end science, you have this really severe problem where nobody actually understands what's going on, like like people kind of get the scientific theories at like an intellectual level but they've become completely alien and estranged from our experience. Um, quantum physics is a really, really intense example of this. Um, and I think that, I think that it really, the subjectivity there comes in. It's, it's not that the science itself is subjective. It's that the scientists, because we're human, I think it's, it's, it's something in the subjective realms, but I think when we're something doing that, that we're not we, really... it's something that we read as being subjective or something that well, we read as being outside of our objective understanding, maybe. Yeah, but it's not. It's just that that's that's just our taking our limitations and projecting those limitations onto there. Yeah, but so when like you the... when you talk about the subjective, like, I don't really know if, if you want to be completely scientific about it. I don't know how much the subjective really exists, mm -hmm. um, but. It's it's our I'm talking about our conception of what subjective is like culturally, mm -hmm. and I think that like oftentimes the further you go down that, the more it kind of uh, goes into the realm of what we consider to be the subjective. That's what I that's what I mean. I think I think as people practice it, that that might be true, but I don't think they're really doing doing good science when they do that. So like the unified field, for example, um, the unified field is a concept that all of the forces in science can be. Um, can be unified into can be unified into to one force and um really like 
mathematically what is happening there is that somebody just happened to figure out um, forces in modern physics are described using something called gauge groups, which is a fancy sounding word, but all it really means is that we have a mathematical object that defines symmetries. And um, we call this, these, these kind of like mathematical objects that describe symmetries, we call them gauge groups. And we have a, this, this sort of, you know, the symmetry object for every single force in, in physics. And um, somebody in like the 80s figured out you could fit a single, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just typing into Google real quick to make sure I remember this right. Yeah, somebody like in the last 30 years sat down and figured out that all of the forces that we have, that the, the, the gauge groups, the, the little kind of like symmetry objects that exist for those, for those forces, you could l kind of fit them together like puzzle pieces. And they'd all be this other gauge group called SU5. So really, like the unified field is just the SU5 Lie group um, exhibiting itself in different ways to produce different kinds of forces. Mm -hmm. And it's also false because if you, one of the things that the grand unified theory, one of the things that the grand unified field theory um, predicts is that protons eventually evaporate. Mm -hmm. So we spent like 10 years, somebody built like a, like a big under, somebody like built this um, big underground detector um, full of heavy water and spent like 10 or 15 years waiting to see if any protons decayed because if, if the proton decayed you'd be able to see this little bitty flash in this underground um, in this underground cavern full of heavy water and I really really hope I'm not confusing things with neutrinos when I say that but the point is that they did do this they did do this experiment to see if protons are decaying and they're not decaying so the grand unified field theory is wrong um, but it's also the, it is the case that like I think that you see a lot of people who try to take like the fuzziness of how we think about quantum physics and try to like get spiritual things out of it or get you know kind of subjective things out of it. Well, it it makes me think of like when when you talk about when people talk about like Freud or something like yeah. Freud has been uh, fairly like almost all of his theories have been debunked as not being yeah very scientific and yet he he sort of ushered in this era of he he's almost more valuable as a philosophical or yeah. l a literary sort of thing. He introduced these concepts, which were actually very true, um, and but it was not or his, his at, application of them was incorrect. Like yeah. his or you look at you look at Jung, who was mm -hmm. kind of like Freud's cohort, and he's doing basically literary. He's basically doing literary analysis. Yeah. If you look at like who has Jung had an impact on, the answer is kind of like Wicca and the neo pagans, because basically that's what his theory turned into was a religion. Um, and you know, well, it's, he's, it's probably, he's had an impact on a lot of art, like well, psych has, psychedelic art, that kind of stuff. But it's but it is the case that we needed those people doing those extremely subjective things in order to you know move on to the somewhat more rigorous study of psychology we've got today. Yeah. So so I feel like when I hear about that kind of stuff, there 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 is a value to it. Almost yeah. in, a more, in a more in that more. And the thing I was going way. to say is that like the people who are doing um, the people who are kind of taking quantum physics and trying to you know find a spiritual dimension in it, they're you know they're not applying science correctly. But it's also the case that if you go and you look at the scientists who talk about quantum physics, the scientists don't really sound any different <laughs> because they're they've got this wild, bizarre thing. This like. The set of mathematical equations that describe the universe and fit experiment perfectly, but 
don't make any sense whatsoever to the human brain. So they have to come up with all these metaphors and all these kinds of very like, you know, like you said, subjective, all these very kind of like loose, vague ideas about like, oh, it's like, it's like a cat in a box or something, man. And, you know, and the things that they're saying are all not really very accurate. Like they come with these vague, like, ideas like, well, in, in quantum physics, something is true and not true at the same time. And these are like real scientists saying things like this. And that's not correct. It's just the case that, like, things have a complex probability which is measured by the two-norm. But that is something that, like, it doesn't, like, have day-to-day real-world meaning to us. The two-norm is not something we use in, in the supermarket. So they need this sort of, like, tiny mental lie of it's like something's true and not true at the same time to get them to understand what's happening at all, and that allows them to do science. And I'm, I actually kind of, one of the things that, like, you know, like I said, the reason I was, I'm interested in the idea of kind of, like, trying to... And I've never done this, actually, unless you count some of my stuff with um, with uh, cellular autonomy. I was I was for a long time wanting to make video games that were set inside of some sort of weird physics concept, like uh, mm. like the loop quantum gravity spin networks, or like you know, one of the one of the string theory brains or one of the string theory membranes with the two dimensional time or something. And, you know, instead of having to, like, interface with these things as sort of these metaphors or these, you know, vague kind of quasi-spiritual ideas that are these sort of myths that we've told ourselves so that we can even bring ourselves to think about these, you know, weird physical mathematical concepts, instead just be like, let's just go there, right? Let's just make a computer program that simulates, let's just dump a robot inside the universe of two-dimensional time because we can simulate it as math, and let's control that little robot, and after we do it for a while, we'll have kind of a will have an intuitive understanding of it because you you really you you make an emotional connection with the objects with the things in in video games you you mm-hmm. identify with them well that's one of the most useful things about making a program and making an interactive piece is yeah. that you can visualize extremely complicated concepts like i yeah. i know there there have been multiple games that have tried to do the fourth dimension thing um, yeah and you know it's 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 actually a fairly simple concept but but it it does help like to have a way to visualize that like yeah. we as humans we can't think about things unless they have emotional reality to us they they have to math, mathematicians if you listen, if you spend time around mathematicians they're constantly using the word intuition and um, they use it in this really idiosyncratic way they're like well the intuition is or it's like oh I I don't have an intuition about that yet and they're describing this sort of like vague thing of just sort of like a thing feeling real to you. That if, if you are if you're working with some sort of a mathematical thing and it feels real to you, you say you have the intuition. Yeah. And it's almost like you've this this mythical artifact that you found. It's like, oh I've I found it, I found the intuition. Well so, And there's there's no real way to get it. You can't be taught it really. It's well, just sort of you have to find it. And that's and that's what I was saying about like art and science becoming mm-hmm. these intersection because when people talk about making art like i've talked about it multiple times in this podcast i work by intuition like i'm working yeah. if i get an intuition that something is correct or something is um uh it feels right like not just emotionally but like it feels like real or there's some kind of uh reality component there's some kind of deeper thing that's emerging from it then that that is like the realm of intuition. So th- yeah. that's just that's the intersection that I see between those two yeah. things. Yeah, and in, in that sense, yeah, there's there's this thing of like you have to uh, there's this thing of convincing yourself that a thing is real, like making it real to you, making it feel real to your brain, and that's what that's what video games are chasing. That point where you're inside the game, you're not manipulating a 
controller or anything. That's you on the screen. You're Mario. You're you're jumping over things and hitting turtles. You know, video games are trying to reproduce that. I think really a lot of other art is trying to reproduce that. That like movies or or, or music are really about trying to make just the world drop away and suddenly like the the piece of art is is your world. That like the movie's real to you. That you're in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, and and that's, that's you know that's also a thing that's it's it's critical in science. You have to make the thing you're describing real to you. It has to mean something to you, especially in the really abstract fields like science. I, th- I think it's, it's sorry in a really abstract in the really abstract fields like like physics. It's probably less of a thing in in medicine because in medicine you're talking about livers and the liver is just right there and it's bleeding and yeah you know all that stuff. Hopefully it's not bleeding, but. Um, but uh, it's you know a lot of the stuff is less concrete and we, you can't you know. Scientists are always trying really hard to reach that point where these these kind of like high level mathy ideas and these models and these theories that they're doing feel real to them and 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 are real to their brains and there's there's this really interesting connection there that I've always wanted to explore and I've just never really gotten the chance to. I think I think this is a good place to end it. Okay. Um, but I I want to say um, I really appreciate having you on because yeah no thank e- you so much for having me every on. conversation I have with you is always really fascinating <laughs> and I always learn something new um, which is a great <laughs> it's a it's a great to be friends with somebody that you can almost always Aww. learn something new when you talk to them <laughs> those are sweet oh um, uh, but the thing that I find really interesting just before we go is just yeah. um you you're somebody you're a programmer and you've worked in Silicon Valley and uh-huh. you've you've done all this other stuff but you have a very clear artistic sensibility and I I feel like the world needs more of that <laughs> um people who are willing to um especially people who are programmers who are willing to to take a dive into the realm of art and try and find those those intersections and interactions and there it doesn't have to be about just it doesn't have to be about feelings in the way that people think about feelings, you know. I mean, yeah. I think feelings is a very can encompass so many different things anyway. Yeah. But um, I don't know if people. I mean, I think I think a lot of what I am doing is about trying to find feelings in math. Like a lot yeah. of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm starting with math, and when I when I look at the math, I feel things like this is beautiful. Look at this thing. Yeah. And I'm trying to to take that math and show it to people in a way that they'll see the feelings in it that I see in it. Or or they'll see the math in their feelings. Or something like that. <laughs> anyway, I think what we need to do is start doing Silicon Valley boot camps where we teach people empathy and beauty in, in 18 weeks. <laughs> yes, that would be excellent. I would. I, I, I hope somebody in the future hires you to do this. I hope you like <laughs> lead, lead, a, lead a charge so that people actually start thinking about this stuff because it, it's All so right. important. But um, th- okay. thank you so much for, for thank coming Thank you for on. having me on. See you, Liz. Okay. Well, bye. Bye. And um, this was Beyond the Filter. I'm Liz Ryerson. I was talking to Andy McClure. I will link her stuff in description um, and stay tuned for other stuff. Okay. Bye.